Moncrief on News Talk. Speaking of utopias, it's time for Tell Me Why uh, with uh, Graham Finley. Uh, as ever, if you've got a question for Graham, you can send it into afternoon at newstalk.com. Today's question is this Why do utopian communities always fail? And Graham joins us now on News Talk. Good afternoon, Graham. Good afternoon. Uh, now, I saw there on, on the Twitter machine, though, you, you were kind of implying that perhaps they don't always fail. Indeed, and I think it's, it's a really interesting question, and there's no way we can do justice to sort of utopian thinking and the actual utopias people have set up because it's really all human life, right? There's this, utop- this tendency to think that things could be a little better, right, which, which I hope we all still have, mm. because, um, and then, you know, that leads you to question whether institutions which we see as necessary or we're tempted to see as necessary, like um, certain forms of marriage, certain economic relationships, and so forth, are really required or whether we could get beyond them and any of the ills they give rise to. And of course, all of human history is the move from one form of marriage and laws about property and and work and things like that to another. So we know by looking at history that things could be different, right? So so the people who expect all utopias to fail are, you know, I think probably being a bit negative and also maybe really conservative about, you know, the present situation such that it could never get any better. Right, so that's my first concern about that. I think the title may be coming from Ewan Morrison's um, article of the same name, and he's a Scottish author who um, grew up with hippie parents, and he was really scarred by that, and he seems to be exercising that by cherry-picking sort of all of the worst things about maybe both utopian thought and actually existing utopian communities, and, and just sort of suggesting that this is a constant you know, with any kind of utopia. Mm. Now, we've already had uh, educated people texting in to say uh, a utopia means no place, ergo it cannot exist. Right. And of course, the word comes from Thomas More. And we know what happened to him. Uh, his, his book called Utopia, which does mean not a place or nowhere. They think, and I, I hadn't really thought about this, you know, I've actually spent some time with Thomas More's Utopia. It could also be a, a play on words on utopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, which means the good place. Right, which is also mm-hmm. a very, very interesting quasi-utopian or dystopian <laughs> sitcom, which um, philosophers love because we get mentioned in it. So, um, you know, it is it is a very learned crowd we've got. And, you, talk, you know, uh, Moore's Utopia wasn't even probably the first sort of fictional utopia. Uh, Plato in The Republic describes what seems like an ideal society. Um, and, and a lot of um, actual utopias were based on the, the highly regimented but designed laws of Sparta, which people will be familiar with, which put a awful lot of resources into education based on toughening people up, had quite outlandish um, ways in which women you know, were seen as you know, much more of a participant in society than surrounding Greek cities. Um, and in fact, Sparta was the inspiration for a number of, um, a number of proposed utopias, uh, which people actually tried to put into place. Right. Okay. And and so it, it actually, if you break it down, there's no, if you like, a catch-all utopia. It seems as if in each individual utopia is uh, is based on the premise of identifying one or or a few problems and saying, well, we won't do that. Yeah. Well, a utopia, I guess you could define it as some. I mean, you know, Morrison calls them intentional communities. So instead of just sort of organically growing up or being sort of pushed together by circumstance. They're places where people have sort of volunteered to get together, and they intend the community to be a certain way, and it's usually based on some kind of design. And so, 
rather than take what we've been given, we, um, we design new ways of living together, a lot of them. So you get religious utopias, um, and this has a really ancient history. I mean, a lot of them are based on the example of the early Christians who lived in communally and, and shared with each other. At least that's what, what we hear, you know, and in contrast to, the, to normal society, which would have been Roman society, say, at the time. Um, and, you know, we see the same thing in monastic communities and in, in ashrams and stuff like that in other countries and other traditions. So, you know, you see religious communities where people are united by a, a religious faith, which prescribes certain forms of being, which seem maybe outlandish to people of more traditional faiths. Um, and, we, and we see these communities, especially in North America, where people could flee, you know, persecution in Europe, where everything was kind of taken uh, to North America, where things were less regulated and there was lots of land they had just taken from from the Native Americans. So, mm. you know, um, these things kind of flourished because they could sell these off to some somebody or some group of people and they could set up buildings and try to make a go of it. And then you also have, but you have secular utopias, which are based on just sort of right reason. And I think Morrison is correct to, to place the utopian ambition in at least these cases in the Enlightenment with the idea that, you know, society could be remade possibly entirely according to reason and could, you know, be made perfect by by just getting rid of all this prejudice and these stupid antiquated traditions which don't make any sense. Right. Then you can have agricultural utopias where people try to live off the land and be self-sustaining, and we have similar ones in this. I mean, Clock Jordan down down Tipperary is an interesting case of that, and it's had its ups and downs. But then we uh, you can have industrial ones like New Lanark um, in Scotland, which was a sort of mill set up to not use quite as much child labor. Okay, well that's nice of them. Actually, well on the subject of child labor, is is is, is how children are raised in these communities uh, an important factor? Yeah, that's a really big problem. And I think if Morrison has something, it's that the role of children can really mess this stuff up. So, um, you know, again, one of the most successful utopias was New Lanark, which was a, a really large factory, which um, happily for the people who worked there came into the hands of Robert Owen, who was had acquired various textile mills. Um, but wanted to treat his workers much, much better and thought that human beings didn't need to be grossly exploited to be productive. And and so he instead of having the children work 12 hours in the mill, he, you know, he, he put them in school and things like that. He, um, you know, had much greater equality for women. He had much greater conditions like eight-hour working days, all things which his fellow textile mill owners really thought was kind of, you know, betraying the side, right? But... Um, it actually worked quite well. It was very productive. It survived shocks, um, economic shocks, better than, than traditional mills. And we do have to notice that a lot of the things which we would count as progress, which might be eroded by our current dystopian capitalism, are things like eradicating child labor. So, so far, so good, right? Mm. Um, and the kibbutzim in, in, in Israel are very, very interesting. They started off as socialist experiments where they tried to raise children communally, um, and that didn't really work out, but they've survived, um, maybe by getting rid of the communal job raising thing to, to no small degree, um, and have built, gotten into all kinds of different industries, including it being Israel, sort of military industries. So, you know, the problem is, you know, the idea of educating children so that they're, you know, is a good thing. But if your goal is educating them to be perfect members of your designed community, it, you know, you have the experience, which almost all parents will, will, will understand, of your children not doing what you want. Right. Yes, not becoming the people you want them to be and not behaving the way you want them to behave. And, and this is a problem. I mean, Morrison is quite correct that the sort of life of a utopian community is basically the time it takes to have and raise children. Um, and so these, you know, these communities 
do find it, you know, their children will just leave if they, if they don't want to live in the community. And in some of these, like Brooks Farm, which was a, a utopian community um, based on Fourierist principles, uh, where the children didn't, you know, which had a hierarchy of jobs, and the children got the really crap jobs, literally shoveling crap by cleaning the toilets. Mm-hmm. And the children sort of rebelled, largely because they were, you know, they had, this, was a, this was a community which had far more academics than it had sort of craftspeople and farmers. So, so it was a bit of a problem there. But, you know, this, the solution might, so, so the children might rebel, and that's been the death of a bunch of utopian communities. The solution then might be not have children. Um, and this was the downfall of a couple of the most successful uh, utopian communities, the Shakers, who you'll know from your kitchen. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, which saw sort of useful work and furniture work, especially very plain, but beautiful, beautiful pieces you know, uh, religious, you know, an equality between men and women, a sort of a, quite a religious fervor, which they expressed by quite elaborate dances, but they were celibate. And so the only way you could grow the movement was to get more people to convert to Shakerism. Um, and they adopted some children, but the children didn't particularly want to be celibate or Shakers when they grew up. Ah, right. That's a bit of a problem. Still, yeah. though, very, uh, a very, very nice, clean design aesthetic. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I mean, they had great kitchens. Yeah. Uh, and so are they gone now then? No, there's a few, I believe, like I was looking on the National um, Historic um, Park Service um, sites for the various Shaker um, communities. I mean, in fact, one thing you can do pretty much as much as you like is utopian tourism. So there are museums to almost all these utopias. You can visit some of them. And they've actually, again, as Morrison points out, sort of become sort of spiritual therapy holiday sites and that's how they make their money these days not through agricultural self-sustainability but by getting people to visit them and and pay big money to be you know fed gruel so um you know cynically i'd say um so uh, it's purifying but uh so so but i did check into this there's one sort of remaining site which has people in it but the last time i looked into the shakers they were very very old so it's not totally Mm. clear that there are still extant shakers um, because they're not a very evangelical crowd. I think they thought that the furniture might just attract adherents that way. And the yeah. dancing. The dancing was very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, mostly hipsters. So uh, tell us about the Rallaheen uh, commune. Yeah, so, um, you know, um, Robert Owen wasn't just, you know, going to stake with the, the one or two textile um, uh, factories. He, he was going to... Uh, um, you know, he had promoted. He was always trying to do something else. In fact, he he, he went off and founded trade unions. So he has a real place in in British socialism. But um, you know, he kept expanding. So he set up. He bought a sort of failed celibate religious community from the Rappites in in um, in Indiana, um, and set up an Owenite community, which produced a huge number of distinguished scientists and educators. A lot of real intellectual development arose from utopian communities but that eventually just sort of didn't quite work out um and he you know he went back to 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 england and scotland where he had much of his stuff but the rallaheim commune was founded in clare on the estate of of, of one john vandler um in newmarket and fergus and um and he thought that maybe like one of these productive owenite sort of communes would be better than having all of his disaffected tenants join various sort of, you know, um, nationalist or property anti, you know, landlord, um, possibly violent groups. <laughs> so, so, so he brought in some English socialists, which always goes well in, in rural Ireland, oh, yeah. um, to set up a commune with his tenants. And, um, you know, it, it did okay for a while. And it, it had one of these typically, um, utopian things where they ban all the all sort of pleasures right alcohol tobacco gambling and so forth 
what they did, you know, and, and people actually were, it had its own script, it had its own currency, which is also very utopian. The idea is that it's going to be independent of, of you know, admittedly a capitalist system, which wasn't treating the people of Clare or pretty much anywhere else very well in the mid-19th century. Um, but what it fell afoul of was um, the the landlord, Vandeleur, didn't um, adhere to this no gambling policy, and he lost all of his estates um, gambling. And and so there there was sort of a call on the um, on the land and on the the loan to the people who were living there, and and so um, sort of they they were had all their property confiscated and they were sort of driven away. So so it was you didn't get a really fair chance, uh, but it shows how dependent, especially this kind of you know Lanarkian or Owenite utopia is dependent on the philanthropist and the people who who are funding it, right? So um, if your you know your philanthropist loses all his money at cards, or you know his example in the case of Robert Owen, who's a remarkably dynamic guy, you know he dies, right? And then you know suddenly the mills don't you know go quite so well, and eventually they're outcompeted by maybe more traditional firms or just the things which happen to companies, as we're seeing sadly all around us. Um, you know companies come and go, you know so they they, they fall apart, um, and this is. This is a really important thing for thinking about sort of all of Western political philosophy. John Stuart Mill thought that these, you know, socialist cooperatives would outcompete the traditional firm, and that's how we get to socialism, not by destroying everything, including seizing all the property and redistributing it and putting the state in charge of everything. And that's why Marx thought that, you know, he had to to discredit all these utopian socialisms because Otherwise, people would be content with that and not destroy the entire system and revolutionize the entire world. So, so this is this is a pretty big debate in in, in Western and other um, political philosophy. What we've got is kind of a combination of the two. So, the cooperative movement is a, a utopian movement. It suggests that you know people can produce goods uh, on a basis which doesn't involve screwing em- employees and, and workers down to the lowest possible wage. Um, and in fact, people will work better if they've got a stake in what they're producing. And uh, these are real things. The, the Mondragon Corporation in Spain employs over 80,000 people um, and is in all kinds of different industries. And as the cooperative people point out, they're really based in the communities they inhabit. And the profits ideally go back into those communities, not to foreign shareholders or shareholders mm-hmm. on Fat Cat Street or whatever. It, it so is interesting stuff. We have to leave it there, Graham. Thanks a million for speaking with us today. Uh, that Graham Finley there. Moncrief on News Talk.